University. I spent seven years working by myself in silent, ordered studios on the borders of Wales, and then in a grim inner city. I was very focused, and so were my pots. And now, here I was in Japan again, in a messy studio next to a man chatting away about baseball, making a porcelain jar with pushed-in gestural sides. I was enjoying myself. Something was going right. Two afternoons a week, I was in the archive room of the Neon Minge Japan, the Japanese Folkcrafts Museum, working on a book about leech. The museum is a reconstructed farmhouse in a suburb which houses the collection of Japanese and Korean folkcrafts of Yanagi Soetsu. Yanagi, a philosopher, art historian, and poet, had evolved a theory of why some objects—pots, baskets, cloth made by unknown craftsmen—were so beautiful. In his view, they expressed unconscious beauty because they had been made in such numbers that the craftsman had been liberated from his ego. He and Leach had been inseparable friends as young men in the early part of the twentieth century in Tokyo, writing animated letters to each other about their passionate reading of Blake and Whitman and Ruskin. They had even started an artist's colony in a hamlet, a convenient distance outside Tokyo, where Leach made his pots with the help of local boys and Yanagi discoursed on Rodin and beauty to his bohemian friends. Through a door, the stone floors would give way to office linoleum, and down off a back corridor was Yanagi's archive, a small room, twelve feet by eight, with shelves to the ceiling full of his books and stacked with manila boxes containing his notebooks and correspondence. There was a desk and a single bulb. I like archives. This one was very, very quiet, and it was extremely gloomy. Here I read and noted and planned a revisionist history of Leech. It was to be a covert book on Japonisme, the way in which the West had passionately and creatively misunderstood Japan for more than a hundred years. I wanted to know what it was about Japan that produced such intensity and zeal in artists, and such crossness in academics, as they pointed out one misinterpretation after another. I hoped that writing this book would help me out of my own deep, congested infatuation with the country. And one afternoon a week, I spent with my great-uncle, Iggy. I'd walk up the hill from the subway station, past the glowing beer-dispensing machines, past Senkakuji Temple, where the forty-seven samurai are buried, past the strange baroque meeting hall for a Shinto sect, past the sushi bar run by the bluff Mr. X, turning right at the high wall of Prince Takamatsu's garden with the pines. I'd let myself in and take the lift up to the sixth floor. Iggy would be reading in his armchair by the window, mostly Elmore Leonard or John le Carré, or memoirs in French. It is odd, he said, how some languages are warmer than others. I would bend down and he'd give me a kiss. His desk held an empty blotter, a sheaf of his headed paper, and pens ready, though he no longer wrote. The view from the window behind him was of cranes. Tokyo Bay was disappearing behind forty-story condominiums. We'd have lunch together, prepared by his housekeeper, Mrs. Nakano, or left by his friend Jiro, who lived in the interconnecting apartment. An omelette and salad, and toasted bread from one of the excellent French bakeries in the department stores in the Ginza. A glass of cold white wine, Sancerre or Pouille Fumé, a peach, some cheese, and then very good coffee, black coffee. 
Iggy was eighty-four and slightly stooped. He was always impeccably dressed, handsome in his herringbone jackets with a handkerchief in the pocket, his pale shirts, and a cravat. He had a small white moustache. After our lunch, he'd open the sliding doors of the long vitrine that took up most of one wall of the sitting room, and would get out the netsuke one by one. The hare with amber eyes. The young boy with the samurai sword and helmet. A tiger, all shoulder and feet, turning round to snarl. He would pass me one, and we'd look at it together, and then I'd put it carefully back amongst the dozens of animals and figures on the glass shelves. I'd fill the little cups of water kept in the case to make sure the ivories didn't split in the dry air. Did I tell you, he would say, how much we loved these as children? How they were given to my mother and father by a cousin in Paris? And did I tell you the story of Anna's pocket?